welcome back for another episode of Me and Mysteries. I'm me, the Ni- I'm Nick, me, the Nick part. Me, me, the Nick part. Nick, the Wing part. And with me again, Mr. 80s. Hi, everybody. It's Daryl, Mr. 80s. He's Nick, which is me, but I'm, you know, it, it's <laughs> very confusing. We have uh, been off. Because I've been sick. Because Nick has been <laughs> under the weather, which will happen in the winter time here in Northeast Ohio. We appreciate your perseverance. But we're back, and better than ever today. We're actually, you know what? The the, the last original show that we did, which was uh, uh, called "Great Debates," where you and I settled some of the great pop culture debates throughout history. Uh, we both thought was one of our best shows, uh, but then nobody listened to it because it was an hour and a half long. So we have definitely learned our lesson that there are a lot of people out there that they see 90 minutes and they flee. So we're just going to try to keep these things to about an hour. Um, I want, Speaking of that show, uh, we, yes. ha- we have a very loyal listener uh, who actually is from the old neighborhood that, uh, that I uh, grew up in from infancy to uh, like 14 years old. And uh, she's a regular listener of the show and uh, comments on the show quite frequently mm-hmm. and uh, can never remember your name. And so she calls you the other guy. <laughs> and um, and you really infuriate her. Oh, uh, she she finds you to be a buffoon. Uh, she finds your opinions uh, to be wrongheaded. She finds you to uh, be a bully, to like the sound of your own voice. And she's always saying these things, and I'm like, really, Nick? That doesn't sound like Nick. I'm like, what? what is going on here? And so after the uh, big, great debate show, she sent me this big, long email where she weighs in on uh, some of her feelings about some of the topics that we discussed, and then underscored how wrong you were about most of your opinions. And as I'm looking over the list, I'm going, those were my opinions. <laughs> <laughs> and so I sent her an email, and I said, I think, I, I can't be sure here, but I, I have a strong suspicion that all this time, when Nick has been upsetting you, it's actually been me. <laughs> and so she starts citing examples from other shows, like, well, what about blah, blah, blah? And I'd reply with, me. Well, what about blah, 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 blah? Yeah, that was me. (laughs) So, she said, it's so hard to tell your voices apart, which I also don't think is the case, but... (laughs) So there you go. I'm just a big bonehead. (laughs) And thank you to all the fans. (laughs) your face when I started rattling off this list of personality characteristics she was assigning to you was priceless. You were like, my God, that's, that sounds exactly like me. I'm a total douchebag. <laughs> nope, that was me, apparently. <laughs> so, I, mean, I don't know if I'm going to, to make it easier for people to, to know who they should hate. I don't know if I should like start talking like this or you know. <laughs> don't talk like this. <laughs> so I I just I don't know how to make it any I don't know how to make it any clearer for people. I just so Arena Rock. <laughs> wow. Well, I, I I yes, the topic for t- this week is Arena Rock, and. To find out what the, the the world at large thought what Arena Rock was, have, do, you, do you have a description that you would cite as what Arena Rock is? That's a great place to, to start because, yeah, it's, it is definitely one of those genres that kind of starts to bleed around the edges an awful lot. To me, yeah. when I think of Arena Rock in its purest form, I think of a very small mm. core group of bands. I think of Journey... Foreigner, Survivor, and Sticks. 
So that would kind of be how I would you know, define at its base Arena Rock. Well, I looked it up on Wikipedia because I was curious as to what a mass audience thinks it is. And I, I got to say that it kind of in, it, it's interesting to me that it, the the origins of Arena Rock, they say date around the time of 1965 when the Beatles played Shea Stadium. And I because they played in a stadium, that that's the beginning of, of, of Arena Rock, really. Okay, that that seemed a bit odd. And then the success of large pop tours like Monterey and Woodstock, because people played in a large area. <laughs> okay. And then large stadium tours by the Stones, Grand Funk Railroad, and Zeppelin. Okay, that's... That's getting closer. That's a little bit closer, but then here's where I think they hit it right, is that they say, you know, smoke fireworks and sophisticated lighting shows become a staple of arena rock performances. They are sponsored by corporate uh, entities and are now considered a corporate rock. Key acts include Journey, Ario Speedwagon, Boston, Foreigner, Styx, Kiss, Peter Frampton, and Queen. And I'd say that, to me, is where arena rock starts. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's well, almost like it seems like that's where the term, even if people are using it nowadays, is still in that, you know, 70s, you know, mid-70s to mid-80s era where corporate slash arena rock is all melded into one thing. And if you are a, you know, a hard rock slash heavy metal band within that time period and you are playing to large audiences you are a corporate arena rock artist and i come out from a slightly different tack because uh the the term arena rock came to uh define your style of music it seems uh particularly in the in the rock press as critics were thumbing their nose at at these groups mm-hmm. and so it it became synonymous with a uh, a style of of music even though the term originated with kind of where you were playing and how your live show looked and that's where i think it gets interesting because uh, taken under that context the bands that were really arena rock in its uh, purest form the groups that i had rattled off they were popular for one thing there was a very small number of them they were popular for a very brief amount of time basically in the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the term lives on uh, through groups like Nickelback. I would think I would think of Nickelback as being a modern, a contemporary arena rock band. Yeah. The big, difference <laughs> being, the big difference being that I happen to love classic arena rock, and yet I yes. think Nickelback is, I don't know, a scourge on humanity. Yes, there you go. That that's a good way to put it. Yeah, I, yeah. They they uh, they they to me, yeah. They're they're in they're an embodiment of of everything that's wrong with the term. You know, if there is ever a uh, a, a a classic poster boy for you know the the uh, the term that you would think. Oh, that is the quintessential classic rock in every pejorative term, mm-hmm. or in uh, arena rock in every pejorative. Yeah, I would say it's a Nickelback. I, I don't. I would agree with that because if to me, if every band, if every arena rock band sounded like Nickelback, I would understand why everybody hates arena rock. Exactly. There you go. That's that's the way to put it. And whereas I've always used uh, the band Journey, and this is crazy because I, as I've gotten older, I find myself. Talking about Journey a lot more than I ever did when I was a kid. I don't consider myself a Journey super fan. No, uh, but I I like them yeah. a lot. And so when I talk they have about a good greatest hits album, so when I talk about Journey, it's not as though I am uh, speaking about them from the perspective of some kind of a Trekkie style <laughs> geek. It's just as I've gotten older and have heard other music compared to the to the to theirs, and they are a linchpin for a lot of people. I mean, there really is, for some reason, they they come up in a lot of conversations about a lot of different styles of rock. Yeah. I mean, you know, whether it's, you know, whether it's their videos in the 80s, whether it's whether they, you know, who is a corporate rock artist or, you know, who is, you know, who is 
to to something, to anything uh, about rock, they seem to reference Journey. Yeah, too slick, too cynical, too whatever. Yeah. Which, when I look at it, I, the reason I use Journey as a litmus test is, and I know this is going to sound kind of D-baggy, but... <laughs> Apparently only to at least one person. <laughs> but, but that's okay, because apparently that's just my annoying personality. Um, is that if somebody if somebody doesn't like Journey, I generally feel they're not a true music fan. Mm-hmm. Because there's really no reason to not like Journey. And I know that's very subjective, but what I mean is you've got well-crafted compositions mm-hmm. being played by excellent musicians very talented yes that they sound good in the studio they sound good live i mean these are, these are real musicians playing real songs yeah and if that's not good enough for you there's probably something wrong with you that's just kind <laughs> of the the angle that i come at it from that if if you would rather believe what misguided hype. Yeah, what all the snobs say about them that actually listen with your own ears and go, well, this is this is not bad. You don't have to love it. Yeah, exactly. But to hate it, there's there's absolutely no reason. You, how can you hate it? It's like it's like hating a baby seal. <laughs> oh no, I do hate baby seals. <laughs> and, and so what I was what I was wondering about is getting to the whole cynical aspect. Mm-hmm. Of arena rock slash corporate rock is that people say that you know the melodies are uh, very simple and the lyrics are you know always about relationships and lowest common denominator and uh, that it's you know the, the critics of this kind of music basically say that it's all craftsmanship no soul. Mm-hmm. What I want to know is these classic composers from years past like Rodgers and Hammerstein. Rogers and Hart, Johnny Mercer, mm-hmm. uh, they did the exact same thing, and they're celebrated as great American songwriters. So why not these guys? Mm, I would say there's a uh, a different attitude when it comes to rock. Rock always has to change. I mean, it, when you release when you release your second album. If it sounds like your first one, everyone says you're a piece of shit and we're not going to buy it. <laughs> but if you released a, you know, a classic artist, you know, a Roger and Hammerstein, if you released a, you know, a second set of, you know, songs that sounded like your first set, no one complains. It's, oh, it's an homage to their last piece. <laughs> oh, it, it's, it's in the same vein and that same style. No, it's the exact same concept. <laughs> <laughs> or, they, or they would even say, hey, the first one wasn't a fluke. These guys really are good. Exactly. Yeah, and but rock is completely, uh, well, uh, Tommy Two-Tone. Uh, someone had mentioned that they got a ringtone from Tommy Two-Tone, and I was thinking about him, and it's like, you know that he has released, what, you know, dozens of albums since that one single he's uh one hit wonder that he's put out well since our show is called me and mr 80s i have to step in and remind you that he is actually they oh right i'm so i'm so sorry uh (laughs) that they have put uh out albums past that yes and they probably have a similar sound to that song and uh, i'm as a mr 80s have you heard any other albums and any other songs past the ones from that one album uh, I have heard the songs from the album that came before it, and then the album that it is off of. Okay. Uh, not subsequent releases, but that I will say that that song, eight six seven five three zero nine Jenny, of course, is not really indicative of their overall sound, which is why they were a one hit wonder. Be- okay. Because while their overall sound is a good sound, and they're actually a, a good band. That song was so much better <laughs> than anything else they ever did that the bar was set so high there was just no way they were ever going to... I think if they had released... If, if something else had hit... And they had a song called Angel Say No off of their first album that was a minor hit, and a lot of people like to point to that and say, well, they did have they did have a hit before that, but it was like maybe a top 50. I mean, this Jenny was a phenomenon. Yeah. 
Uh, and so the problem was is that Jenny was so good, so expertly crafted, just such a classic song, and they they just they couldn't follow that up, and that's that's kind of why they. Well, that ruins my the the point I was going to try and make, but I was my point being that. Someone who makes one song but Wasn't doesn't that have baggy of no 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 that's, no that, that's actually good I, I actually was kind of I, I actually wanted to uh, look at that and see more about them just because of what I was thinking about that um, but it was just sort of like if you do that one thing and you're recognized for that one thing no matter how much you can sound like that past that point if you sound like that I mean if you sounded like Jenny. And you did it for six more albums. No one's going to care because if you, no matter how much you sound like one song, if you do that again, even uh, how about Van Halen mm-hmm. uh, on OU812, they did a song. What was it feels so good that sounded exactly like something from 5150? Oh, know? I I think I always thought that when it's love sounded just like love walks in. There you go. That's what it was. And so. You know, you can't really appreciate the song because, well, it kind of sounds like their last one. Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> again, in a different genre of music, that wouldn't be seen as a travesty. But in rock, it is. And I, that, to me, is, once you do that, Nickelback, as a corporate rock, the problem I have with them is that, in my ears, everything sounds the same. Right. Like you've just put out an album that sounds exactly like your last album. You just put in different lyrics, mm-hmm. and to me, that's the that's what people say about corporate rock that is the problem. But it doesn't really apply to most arena corporate rock albums. I mean, Journey, you can listen to their greatest hits and hear a vast difference in songs. You know, between the twenty songs on there. Mm-hmm. But if you did the same with Nickelback, I gotta think you'd just be like, after ten songs, you'd be like, wait, which ones, which ones one and which ones ten? Right. Well, this you're doing a much better job than I ever was at, at coming up with uh, an explanation, which is that to uh, certain rock fans, it's rock fans. It is all about evolve or die. Mm-hmm. And since these bands are. Yeah, you know, pretty much they they find what works and stick with it. They they it's sort of like the you know the Orville, the Orville Redenbacher of rock. Do one thing and do it the best. The Orville Redenbacher of rock. I want a T-shirt with that. <laughs> Just have Orville Redenbacher and then like have him give him the devil horns. Uh, <laughs> it's rock that goes pop. Um. That's the you know that's the I don't even have an explanation so that that may very well be it and it is it is true that you know certain artists can get away with beating the same sound to death while other artists can't you know I mean if if ACDC changed their sound if the Rolling Stones changed their sound I mean there would be rioting in the streets <laughs> so it, it's I don't know it's it's a it's a conundrum. But it seems to apply to, again, it seems, it seems to apply to that arena rock genre, which is very odd. Even, yeah, ACDC is a great example. They have a lot of things that sound similar. Mm-hmm. It, to the point where when you hear them on the radio, you're like, oh, wait, this is black and black. Oh, no, it's not. Wait, <laughs> wait which one is this? You know, it's just sort of like, but nobody slams them. They are <laughs> they are one of those legendary rock bands. Well, they they even joke about it. I mean, there's that. <laughs> the, I'm paraphrasing here, but I I can't remember if it was Brian Johnson or if it was Malcolm Young who said this. Not Angus. It was not Angus. It was either Malcolm or Brian Johnson. But somebody said that they have uh, put out the same album ten times, <laughs> and this person said that's a damn lie. It's been eleven. <laughs> That's cute. So, I think um, with the, the classic, you know, arena rock lineup of bands, they kind of—I don't know—I would say probably from the mid '70s to the mid '80s. We're, talk, we're looking at probably a ten-year period when they ruled the earth. Mm-hmm. And then what happened, in my opinion, anyway, is uh, the hair bands kind of took their place. 
Hmm. Yes. And that gets into the whole blurred line kind of a thing because on the late end of it, I think hair metal kind of overtook that whole arena rock thing. Mm-hmm. In the early stages of it, in the 70s, it was kind of an outgrowth of progressive rock. Yes, classic Genesis. Mm-hmm. I know, you know, the, the big Peter Gabriel era Genesis fans out there <laughs> are absolutely rolling over that I'm comparing their baby to arena rock but i'm sorry folks i think you would have to admit that the seeds are definitely there oh so, yeah there was definitely that you know uh, lamb lies down on broadway is such a you know a uh, a big production i mean and they're talking about arena rock being you know stage and lights and performance being as much a part of their um overview yeah. as uh, as the music and yeah that's Lamb Lies Down on Broadway is pretty much the quintessential, you know, progressive, to me, progressive rocks, um, operatic, you know, high note. And, and you know, uh, Styx got its start as an arena rock band. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think even Genesis fans would admit that by the heart of the Phil Collins era with Invisible Touch, Genesis was a bonafide <laughs> arena rock band. If not corporate rock, they could even be thrown into the, you know... Uh, that genre of crossover. Yeah. So you think that you know, a band like, and actually Journey got its start as a progressive rock band too. Their very first album was a prog rock album. Uh, so when you think about Journey as being the band in rock history that links, yes, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer <laughs> to Bon Jovi and Poison. <laughs> you know, it's it's an interesting... Six degrees of separation. Kind of evolution there. <laughs> Six degrees of journey. Is that the game? <laughs> I want to give a little love. Uh, you know, Speedwagon. Are you a Speedwagon? Mm-hmm. Um, I meant to say I want to give a little love to the band Survivor. But that made me think of Speedwagon, too, because Survivor and Speedwagon are, are both kind of groups that never really got their due mm-hmm. in, in the arena rock uh, genre. I never thought of... Speedwagon, though, as being cock rock enough to qualify. I just, you know, they always seem to be more balladeers. They seem to be more mom rock, minivan rock to me. Maybe I'm just being sexist. I don't know. Well, I, I think to me that the they, in the 80s, were more soccer mom rock. But I, I to me, it seems like they're... And I don't really know much of their history, but it seems like their 70s period uh, is where they got the tag for Arena Rock. But when they carried it into the 80s, they were still had they still had the tag on them, but they had definitely gone into the heavily heavily top 40 balladeer type thing and really moved off of um, pomposity of Arena Rock. That's probably what it is, because their earlier stuff definitely was a bit more rocking, like riding the storm out and exactly. stuff like that. But Survivor is the band that I wanted to give some love to. They, in my opinion, are uh, the number two arena rock band of all time, right behind Journey. I know nobody else would agree with me on that. <laughs> but they really are a, a great band that that never really got their due. Almost Tommy Two-Tone Syndrome, simply because... Uh, it seems like their entire career was overshadowed by the success of Eye of the Tiger. Yeah. Even though their greatest commercial success came after that when Jimmy Jameson Great voice. joined the group. He was the mastermind behind the 80s hits, I assume. The uh, High on You and all that. Right. Yeah, his first his first album uh, with the band uh, it was one of those... Scenarios where when he joined the group, everybody was like, "What? Who?" And then uh, out of the gate, they they spun off uh, "Can't Hold Back," which is an awesome song and it never gets played for some reason. <laughs> "Can't Hold Back," "High on You," and the search is over. And yeah, those were huge. Those were monster, <laughs> massive hits. You know, when he joined the group, I remember uh, reading he was always uh, he was always mentioned in the articles. You know, when they would say that. You know, Dave Sweeney's left the band. Uh, he's being replaced by country rock band Cobra lead singer Jimmy Jameson. 
He was in a country rock band? And they would always say, country rock band Cobra, lead singer Jimmy Jameson, like that's supposed to mean anything to anybody. (laughs) And I've got to say, all these years later, I still have never heard a single song from country rock band Cobra. Have you? I didn't even know there was a band called Cobra. <laughs> obviously, obviously their mom was was really happy about that. Oh, my baby keeps getting mentioned by his Cobra band. That's so sweet. Really? Country rock band Cobra. Uh, wow. Nick's got his tablet out. He is going to see if he can find anything from country rock band Cobra. What a stupid name. I mean, that, that sounds like a prog rock band name. Yes. Or a, a metal band name, but not country rock. If you're going to be a country rock band and you're going to name yourself after a snake, wouldn't it have to be like Rattlesnake? Doesn't that sound more like yeah, a country that rock? Yeah, does not sound. Uh, Cobra does not sound like a country band. Um, wow, what the hell is this? And of course, country rock is a whole other confusing subgenre of music that oh, we can no get into. <laughs> While you're looking for that, one thing I wanted to mention is a band that I think qualifies as arena rock, but for some somehow has been able to maintain its indie cred. Well, there it is. Hey! <laughs> That's Jimmyson up in the uh, top right. You are correct. Cobra, the first strike. Oh, little snake <laughs> pun. Oh, wow. I bet if they'd hung around, they would have Venom. <laughs> Well, there they are. And it came out in 2011, so they must have just like re- released it or re-released well, it. I'm sure, because this, this, this cover photo is oh, that's... old. <laughs> you know what's funny, though, is that there's nothing country about this. This looks Not at all. totally rock. Yeah. Now, granted, if they just released it, they may have uh, picked the photo. most. Yeah. Or photoshopped out the 10-gallon hats. <laughs> <laughs> Some guy in the background going, yeehaw! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that looks that looks like it could be you know anybody. Yeah, opening for Loverboy. Yeah, any kind of blues-based rock band. Okay, yeah. well, we'll have to when the mics are off. Listen to some of that and see what country rock band Cobra sounds like. <laughs> they don't look country. At, they're all wearing leather. Oh, okay. Now I got to see the songs. Okay, here we go. Blood on your money. Only you can rock me. Traveling man. Are you sure it's not only you can country me? <laughs> only you can country rock me. <laughs> Fallen Angel. I'm sure that's probably a cover of Poison. Yeah, right. Uh, what love is thorn in your flesh? Oh yeah, there's nothing at all country about this. I totally have to. Uh, not even a bonus track called "Banging My Sister." <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> Oh, that is a lovely stereotype. We we love all our people in Arkansas, no matter how many times you fuck your sister. <laughs> anyway, as I was saying, a band that I consider arena rock that somehow has, has maintained uh, indie respectability is Cheap Trick. I've never listened to them. You've never listened to Cheap Trick? I know. I, I they're just one of those things where uh, I mean, I've heard their songs. I've heard them on the radio. I've heard people play them for me. Um, when I was working at a, a music store, you know, someone would play you know a couple of their albums and stuff. And a lot of the time when I was working at the store was in the uh, mid '90s, where they were trying to make a comeback and they were trying to become the Beatles, which I didn't understand at all. That that kind of turned me off to yeah, searching yeah. their back catalog. In the 90s, they were trying to be either the Beatles or Nirvana. They yeah. Kind of, they were trying to be like an alternative. That kind of sucked. So, so kind of like that was, you know, I didn't go end up going back to their stuff. But no, I should. that Because, boy, they get referenced by so many people as influential and, you know, a, a great rock and roll band. And I've got a lot of Cheap Trick albums. Um and I will say that when they're good, uh, it just blows your mind how good they are. You know, a song like "Surrender," uh, the fact that a very simple blues-based rock song that doesn't even have a bridge, that is just verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, fade out, can be so good, <laughs> it just blows your lid off. 
and then you'll listen to some other stuff on their albums, and they're being so freaking clever and so freaking self-satisfied and uh, so you know referential of their influences, and it's just like, quit it. <laughs> so I've always thought of them as being a very, you know, kind of a tale of two bands. Hmm. So what would you say, I mean, I, I've... Definitely heard them referenced as arena rock and corporate rock. Are they are they more of the uh, are they are they misrepresented or are they more corporate? I mean, is it more of like they are? There's like two or three albums that are good, and the rest of it is kind of deserving of the title, it's, or are they totally misguided? It's a strange mix of arena fist pumpers. And then quirkier, kind of, you know, follow our own creative muse type of stuff. And I think that that quirkiness is what prevents them from being bonafide arena rock artists. <laughs> but then they've got some, I mean, like the Dream Police. I mean, come on. <laughs> the Dream Police is an arena rock song. Sorry, Cheap Trick fans. Definitely got some, you know, pompous fist rock. Yeah. Raw, raw. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I, I, and in looking at, uh, Arena Rock on Wiki, uh, they said also referencing cock rock. So I looked at what their definition of cock rock was and who so their players were. Well, a uh, term typically used derogatorily, derogative. Derogatively, to describe a style of rock music that emphasized an aggressive form of male sexuality, developed in the later '60s and came to prominence in the '70s and '80s. Uh, the obvious to say the quintessential purveyors of cock rock are Led Zeppelin. Huh. Uh, and then the '80s, the term got changed almost to an, inter an interchangeable with hair metal or glam metal, which I, I had not heard before, which I thought was also kind of weird. Because, you know, when I think of cock rock, I do think of Zeppelin. I do think of uh, something very, something very seventies to that. And I don't think of hair metal as cock rock because they were so feminized. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, the cover of Let's, you know, look what the cat dragged in. You know, those are sort of, those are four pretty women on there. <laughs> <laughs> right. So to say that, you know, the what is it the uh, aggressive form of male sexuality doesn't really exist in glam. I remember actually telling a friend of ours back in the in the time period after he had purchased that album that those were not hot chicks on the <laughs> album cover, and he did not believe me at first. And then once he did, uh, he felt was, shame for his masturbation. That I yes he he <laughs> the way he reacted to it. It became quite obvious that he'd probably rubbed out a couple to that album cover. It happens in glam. <laughs> what happens in glam metal stays in glam metal. Yeah, uh, cock rock. I don't know. Every time I hear that phrase now, I just always think of that line from the Doors movie, he's the god of rock and cock, about Jim Morrison. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but see, to me, that's more of where cock rock is rather than arena or hair metal. You know, to me, there was that that kind of that you know really overly pompous lead singer with the obnoxiously tight leather pants exactly. who just sort of you know, I mean, even uh, to me, I think a an '80s version of that would have been uh, Axl Rose. Because I think he had that obnoxious cock swagger when he sang mm -hmm. that I think he probably learned from, right. you know, the 70s era. But, you know, he definitely didn't have the, he didn't have as much of the sexuality. I mean, I don't know, girls can tell me whether that's different or not. But I, I didn't see, he had the aggression, but he didn't really have the sexuality to me. Well, that, and that's the thing, because uh, I think the cock rock is really a term that a lot of... Uh, women 
used. But, and the reason yeah. the reason I think that is is because you you actually what you just said kind of hit on what I always think of whenever I hear that phrase, which is it's largely dependent on the sexual charisma of the lead singer, and he's usually wearing tight pants where you can see the outline of his private parts. Mm-hmm. Now, since I am not very sensitive to the sexual magnetism of male lead singers, I have a very hard time identifying what qualifies as cock rock and what does not. But it seems to be a term that women kind of toss around when, uh, sorry ladies, but it seems like when I've heard it used, it's generally women trying to be disparaging of an artist that they're attracted to in spite of themselves. Like Justin Bieber. The ultimate cock, cock rock millennial. <laughs> Except I think he's got a camel toe. <laughs> uh, beaver. Short show. <laughs> yes, we have not hit the, we've not hit the hour mark yet. God bless America. But what, what, what time are we at? We are just hitting 37 minutes. Oh, my gosh. It's a short show. Well, I don't know if we have anything more to say about Arena Rock, because I, I do have an addendum topic that might get your dander all up. Sweet. I decided, I decided this week, did you remember, remember back in the 90s when uh, SNL did their uh, parody of Blossom? Very Dad, I just want you to know I've decided to menstruate. <laughs> you decided to menstruate? No, I know, it's, it's a time in every forty year old man's life. The way that I was about to phrase that though. I just wanted to let you know that this week I decided I'm done with Kevin Smith. Oh gosh, I was just I was just thinking about that a few days ago. So, a little background, Kevin Smith, obviously, independent uh, director who made his name with uh, the indie classic comedy Clerks, Um, well-known as a uh, script doctor in Hollywood Mm -hmm. to kind of uh, punch up dialogue because he's known for his very snappy, uh, crackling, uh, funny, pornographic, uh, real kind of hyper-real slacker dialogue, Mm -hmm. Um, and generally was an auteur where he would write and direct his own stuff with kind of a rotating band of of actors that he felt comfortable with, almost kind of like a a slacker Woody Allen or a slacker (laughs) John Cassavetes, Uh, and then made a movie with Seth Rogen. Seth Rogen introduced... A nearly 40-year-old Kevin Smith to marijuana. I've got no problem with marijuana use. Um, but it seemed to have really changed the direction of his life. Uh, yeah. He took his first director-for-hire job with the 80s um, cop buddy flick homage cop-out with Bruce Pouch. Willis and Tracy Morgan, which the best thing about that movie was the Harold Faltermeyer score. Mm. Um, and... In his early days, his part of his appeal was that he was a very uh, accessible celebrity. He was he was a, a writer and a director of movies that appealed to a set fan base, and uh, he was very open about his process, very open about how lucky he felt, very open about his own personal shortcomings would go on these tours and to colleges where he would talk and answer questions for you know three and four hours and was a very witty raconteur. Um, but he was there because of the fame he had generated amongst his fan base from the films. Mm-hmm. And then something happened where he's now turned into a slacker Kim Kardashian who is just famous for being famous. <laughs> And the whole thing of you know, him speaking off things off the top of his head and being funny has now kind of become bigger than his work. Yeah. And you know, I keep waiting for the Kevin Smith cologne to come out. <laughs> He's just marketing himself now as a lifestyle brand. And it's like he now believes that his every thought 
needs to be monetized somehow. Yes. I, I, I was just thinking about this um, in, uh, I listened to a lot of podcasts, and I pretty much stopped listening to all of his podcasts um, right about the time where uh, his last movie, Red State, which was okay. Uh, definitely not anywhere near as good as any of his comedies and not really, um, did you see it? No, but yeah, I was going to say, and I, I don't want you to lose your train of thought here, but uh, but I did want to get back to what you had told me about Red State at some point, which is that it was clearly made by a pothead. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it was unfocused. And to me, you know, he was, you know, editing as he was going, and it kind of seems like you, you don't, you, you, you don't finish a lot of thoughts when you're stoned, it seems to be. Where you're kind of, you know, it, it's almost like you know, a, a drug form of ADD. You're just sort of like bouncing here and there. And when you edit a movie like that, it, it, it is unsatisfying. And I, to me, that's what the movie was. It was a good movie, but it was unsatisfying because it just didn't seem to finish his thoughts. And when you then give the man a microphone <laughs> and let him not finish his thoughts, it just seems a bit... Um, hard to follow. And, uh, I've seen all of the, uh, speaking things that he did. We've seen him mm-hmm. speak before. And, you know, as much as that was captivating five or six years ago, his constant, uh, speaking, and this is what I was just thinking about a, a week ago, is that when he didn't talk all the time, it was something to listen to, but when he talked all the time, it stopped being something I had to listen to all the time. Mm-hmm. And that's unfortunate, because I really like the guy. I liked his movies. I like what he had to say. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't really need to hear every single thought the man has. It's really, you know... Uh, and when he did this, I read that, you know, uh, him talking about this and, you know, uh, heard him speak about it. And he said, you know, we have a core audience of people who follow me wherever I go. If I go, you know, do clerks, they'll follow me. If I go direct that episode of uh, Degrassi High, they follow me. If I go do Red State, they'll follow me. Well, here I'm going to go, you know, do my own radio empire, and they will follow me. And as long as they follow me, I'll make enough money where I can do this and have fun and doesn't matter. And in that case, that's fine. But that's kind of where I turned it off because I just didn't need to follow him everywhere. Yeah. And that's another, wow, I can't believe we're on the same page with this because I know you, you were a much bigger fan of his than I ever was. I mean, I had a lot of appreciation for, you know, what he brought to entertainment, but I know you were kind of a much more hardcore fan. So it's kind I listened to a lot of his podcasts. And we've never talked about this, and yet we're kind of on the same page. So... Yeah, and, and that was just something I just r- really realized three or four days ago when I re- when I was seeing the podcast lists, and I'm like, boy, I have not downloaded anything or listened to any of his stuff, and it just wasn't like I felt the need to anymore. I, oh, it was he's done he's doing a podcast uh, follow up to the Annie reality show that he's doing. You know about that? He's doing a reality show on I think Annie. About his comic book shop. Oh, AMC. The Secret Star. AMC. AMC is comic right. book men. Yes, yes. I'm familiar with that. I haven't seen it, but I just didn't care enough. You know, it, and that was when I just sort of said, okay, I guess I, I guess we're done. <laughs> that was kind of the final straw for me too, was when I found out he was doing a reality show. And, and, uh, they show promos for the reality show a lot during mm-hmm. The Walking Dead, which the, you know, Mrs. 80s and I watch religiously. Mm. And, <clears throat> Even even just from the the promos, even though he's not in a lot of them, mm-hmm. it's you know he, it's just so Kardashian. It's just it's so it's so cheesy um, that you know, here's this guy that thinks he is thinks his audience is such a bunch of barking seals that they'll even watch a show about the guys that run his comic book shop, and you know he'll pop in. Occasionally, like you know, Keenan Ivory Wayans and Don't Be a Menace, going message and then leave. It's just yeah, the the, the cynical way in which he has 
expressed how he is now basically expecting his fans to subsidize his lifestyle. I don't know. Maybe we should applaud him for being so open about it, since I'm sure he's not the only one who feels that way. And he is being awfully forward. Yeah. I mean, short, short, of, short of coming out and saying it, he's pretty much come out and said, I'm just going to you know, throw some chum to, to my fans, and they're going to keep paying my rent. Yeah. And well, he's pretty much, I think, pretty much come out and said that. <laughs> and that's, and obviously, you know, he's got a bunch of podcasts. They're still giving him a TV show. So uh, whatever audience he has, they're paying for it and they're buying it and they're listening to it and they love it still. It's just, uh, uh, not for me anymore. <laughs> I think, I think I've moved on. Wow. All right, well, it's the end of an era, then. Yeah, no kidding. That's too bad. I meant to mention this at the top of the show. Uh, I'm going to be putting this on our Facebook page as well. But I would like to solicit submissions from the listeners. Uh, I, we would like your Live Aid stories. Ooh, nice. We would like to know what that day was like for you, um, how you watched it, you know, did you watch it alone? Did you get together with a group of friends? You know, how old were you? At what part in your personal development did it come along? What has it meant to you as the years have gone by? Just kind of what are your memories of it? Because Live Aid is kind of our generation's Woodstock, um, but we a lot more of us got to experience it because of the fact that it was carried live on television, mm-hmm. and it really was that kind of. Uh, global event where we all were one and it was very special and uh, a lot of people did build their day around it that day mm-hmm. and so if you're one of those people we'd like to hear right. about it so uh, shoot us an email and tell us your live aid story just put uh put live aid in the subject line and uh, send it to uh, mr 80s at rocketmail.com m-i-s-t-e-r-8-0-s at rocketmail.com you can also use that same email address to uh, reach us anytime. And like I said, uh, at the time that uh, this show is going out, I will also put this on our Facebook page, this solicitation. And uh, a few months down the road then, hopefully we'll get some uh, decent submissions and we'll be having a, a show where we will talk about the importance of Live Aid. Because there's a very special Live Aid anniversary coming up, the 27th anniversary. <laughs> 27th. Yes. So we're going to celebrate the 27th anniversary of Live Aid, <laughs> me and Mr. 80s style. And we'd like you to be a part of it. So that's how you can. Very cool. Um, I also, I meant to put this on my Twitter, but I was sick and hadn't gotten around to it yet. So I'll put pictures up of this uh, on my Twitter feed at, at uh, Boost for Darla. Or at Boost for Darla. And, but I, I went and saw Brit Floyd. What? They are they are Brit Floyd. They are a tribute band for Pink Floyd. And although I went to their B R I T, correct. All right. And I thought I read this uh, somewhere, but I didn't see it on their uh, front page of their website. But I thought that they were like a sanctioned offshoot, you know, a sanctioned tribute band for Pink Floyd. And after seeing the show where they have. Uh, they've used computer graphics of the characters from the Floyd show, and they actually use archival footage of, like, Sid Barrett in the show. Hmm. i got to think that they are in some way affiliated with the actual band to be able to get all this, the rights for all this footage stuff to be used in their show. And they actually will, you know, promote the fact that they're doing a tour on based on the greatest hits of Pink Floyd that just came out. So... Either they're sanctioned or you have just sent Roger Waters' lawyer uh, to the Internet looking up Brit well, Floyd. They even sent, they even referenced his tour, and they said, you know, you know, we're going to do a little short tribute of The Wall, which, you know, Waters is doing, so go out and see that. It's a wonderful show. Hmm. So I, I do think that they are sanctioned. And it was fucking awesome. Where'd you see him? They, at the Civic. In Akron? Yes. Okay. And I've never been to the Civic before, so I, I'd never seen... 
knew what it was going to be like, yeah, for, and we had comp tickets, so I didn't know where we were going to be sitting. For folks not familiar with the Civic, you probably have a theater like this in your town or nearby. It's one of those historical movie houses mm-hmm. um, with the you know the very ornate kind of interior architecture, and a lot of theaters like that to stay afloat now have in not just movies; they've got live acts. That's what the Civic is. And yeah, the uh, the venue itself was very cool. But, you know, it does kind of like the Linda or something where it's all like that one level uh, floor and then a small balcony up at the top. Yeah. And the, the show, they were they were awesome. They sounded great. Hmm. Um, I had gotten uh, psyched for this thing by playing some Pink Floyd, curious as to what they were going to do and how they were going to do it. Um, they had a they had a phenomenal uh audiovisual experience where they just had so much, you know, uh, laser lights going on while they were playing and they had um, this huge ass circle behind them and that's where they were running all the footage and stuff. And yeah, it was, it was absolutely captivating, memorized, uh, uh, mesmerizing phenomenal. So, you know, just, I just want to put that out there to people that if you, uh, if you like Pink Floyd, I, I normally don't go to these things <laughs> because it's, you know, if I want to hear it, I can just play it on my stereo. But it was because of the fact that I'd heard that they had some tie to Pink Floyd themselves, I thought this might be something different, and it was. It was it was really excellent. So check them out if they're in your area. They do tour all over the world, so anyone who's hearing this, they might come see you. So go see them. It was terrific. All right. Very good. Well, I plugged the... Uh the email address already, Mr80s at rocketmail.com. Uh, look us up on Facebook, me and Mr. 80s. Um, go to the blog that has not been updated in eight months, uh, mr80s.wordpress.com. And unless you have any final words, nope. Good night, Jonathan Banks, wherever you are. <laughs>